We're going to be looking this evening in Luke chapter 18. Looking at the parable of the unjust judge. As we look at this one this evening, it is a more familiar parable than what we looked at last week. So, for better or worse, this is one that we know better. It's a little bit easier to understand than what we examined last week. But we're going to take a look at it anyway. Just to catch us up as far as what's going on in Luke's Gospel... After Jesus gives the parable of the serving servant, um, he then is on his way to Jerusalem. As they're passing through Samaria and Galilee, they enter a village and he's met with ten lepers. And we're familiar with this story. He heals these lepers tells them to go back to the priests. And when these lepers go, they show themselves to the priests. They're made whole. And we see only one of these lepers returning to give God thanks. And the thing that I find interesting is which of the lepers came back. Because Luke points out that it was the Samaritan leper. So any of the lepers that would have had an excuse to have hated Jesus because he was Jewish would have been this guy. And yet he is the one who demonstrates gratefulness and thanks. After this, the Pharisees come to Jesus again and they demand that he tells them when the kingdom of God is going to come. Because if we remember, as Jesus is on the earth, the first part of his ministry Uh, What John the Baptist had been teaching, what Jesus is teaching at the beginning of his ministry is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's nigh. It's ready for you if you accept it. Um, The question came up this morning, and I'll just go ahead and address it real quick. Verse 21 of Luke 17 Jesus says, the kingdom of God cometh not, with, or cometh not with observation, neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And the question was asked, is Jesus saying the kingdom of God is within these individuals who are asking the question? There is a sense in which because in our New Testament era we have the Spirit in us, There is a part of the kingdom in us. But Jesus is referring to and speaking here to the Pharisees. So is Jesus saying to these Pharisees, you guys are all saved? And the answer, based on the Pharisees' own actions, is no, that's not what Jesus is saying. Uh, A better way to understand that verse there is that the kingdom of God is near because the king of the kingdom was there. Because Jesus himself, the Messiah, the Christ, was within their midst, that's how the kingdom is within, it's near to them. He's not saying that all of these individuals are saved. And then Jesus goes and 
says when the kingdom of God is going to come, and he gives a couple of illustrations. Okay, when the kingdom of God is going to come, just like it did with the days of Noah. Okay, before the flood, what was everyone doing? They were eating, drinking, they were marrying, they were giving in marriage, they were living their lives the way they wanted to without any concern for the fact that Jesus or God's judgment was coming and God's judgment came. And Jesus gives another analogy very similar with the days of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah and what were they doing? They were eating, drinking, giving in marriage, getting married, doing whatever they wanted to do without any type of understanding that God's judgment was coming and when God's judgment came, it was rather unexpected. And Jesus follows this, you know, that's when, what it's going to look like when the kingdom of God comes, when Jesus comes and sets up his literal thousand-year throne in Jerusalem. The, the analogy that Christ continues is that you have two people, two women grinding together. One of them's going to be taken, the other one will be left. One's going to die, one will survive. Two people will be in the field, one will be taken, the other will be left. One's going to die, one's going to survive. And they answer, okay, where is this going to take place? And Jesus says, wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. And the idea there is, you want to know where it's going to take place? Follow the corpses. That's where the vultures are going to be. That's the idea. Uh, the word eagle that's translated there, eagle, is not like what we think of as Americans, the majestic bald eagle. It's more of a vulture. So you want to know when Jesus is going to set up his kingdom? As great and glorious as that's going to be, it's going to come after he defeats the armies of the world. And it's not going to be the best of situations for those who are opposed to him. And then we get to chapter 18, where we get this parable of the unjust judge. And Luke is going to play spoiler a little bit. Okay, Luke chapter 18 starts a new paragraph in the uh, Greek, but not a new topic. What Jesus comes down to ultimately at the end of this parable is when the Son of Man does come, is he going to find faith? And we'll take a look at what that means. And in chapter 1, Luke basically tells us here's what this parable is. He, he gives us a spoiler. So if you think back to when you were, John, John, don't do this, but when you were in college and you had to read all of these things and you go to the store and you get the cliff notes instead so you get an understanding what's going on. Luke gives us the cliff notes, okay? Here's what this parable's about. And then in verses 6 through 8, Jesus applies the parable to his hearers. So we'll go ahead and look at this evening the parable explained, the parable given, and then the parable applied. Luke chapter 18, Luke writes, And he, Jesus, spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Okay, and that men is the generic mankind. Okay, this isn't a only men pray, women, you're off the hook. Mankind should pray. Saying, there was a city, in a city, a judge, which feareth not God, neither regarded man, 
And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? And again, Luke in verse 1 gives us the meaning of the parable before we read it. Okay, in the end of chapter 17, Jesus has just taught that he is coming again. And when he comes again, he will set all things right. As he is setting up his, the great, or setting up his kingdom, everything is going to be set right. And while we are waiting for that, Jesus gives the instruction that we are to pray always and refrain from losing heart. So while we are waiting for the Lord's return, for him to come and make all things right, as difficult as that can be at times, as we talked about and considered on Sunday, we go through suffering, we go through trials, we may even go through physical persecution in this lifetime. And from a human perspective, it can be very difficult to wait. You know, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. How long? Uh, When we get to Revelation chapter 6, John sees, in one of the visions that he sees, is he sees the um, saints who have been slaughtered and their blood basically uh, before the Lamb saying, how long until you avenge our blood? How long, God, until you act and make things right? In this parable that Jesus is saying, teaching here, is the only way that we can do this, the only way that we can successfully last until the end comes is by prayer. Praying always and not losing heart. Paul picks this theme up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5.17. Pray without ceasing. Okay, and this is nothing that is, should be a shock to any of us. But as believers, prayer should be a regular feature of our life. Because essentially, prayer is a confession that our strength comes from the Lord. Prayer is a recognition that we can't do it on our own, that we need His strength and His grace every day. And on one sense, that is a very simple concept that we have been taught an innumerable amount of times. But on the other hand, when the rubber meets the road and we step outside the doors of the church and difficulties come up, what's our first response? If you're anything like me, that first response isn't always to go before the Lord in prayer. Too often that first response is, okay, how can I solve this mess? How can I figure this out? 
What can I do to fix this? The answer isn't necessarily me. It's that dependence on God. And Jesus then gives this parable in verses 2 through 5. The main character of this parable is a judge, an individual who does not fear God. Because he does not fear God, he has no respect for human beings. Understanding contextually at this time in history, this judge that Jesus is referring to, judges had great authority. And with that great authority came great power. And with that great power came great riches. And this judge, like the authority and the power of the riches, the social status, because in the Jewish mindset, um, if you are rich and wealthy and in a high status, that means God is blessing you. And I think that may be part of why he doesn't fear God. Look at how wealthy I am. Look at the power I have. I don't need God. The Torah called upon judges to rule justly. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15, the law states, ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Okay, so if you're a judge, do no unrighteousness. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. They should be ruling justly. A fundamental requirement for all in Israel was to fear the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 6, after Moses calls the children of Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord, and he goes through the Shema, he then continues in verse 13, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God? And how do you do that? By walking in his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. Verse 20, again, of Deuteronomy chapter 10, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, him shalt thou serve, and to him shalt thou cleave. That word cleave is the same word that we have with our principle of marriage. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. That idea of inseparable joining together. And that's what Israel should have been doing with God. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, Solomon sums up really the book of Ecclesiastes, but in a greater sense, the entirety of life. He says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Okay, what should we do? What does God want from us? He wants us to fear him. Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Those who fear God worship him. Those who fear God live their lives in a way that then demonstrates God's character in their lives. 
In Nehemiah chapter 5, Nehemiah points out to the people in Israel that the former governors before Nehemiah had been sent there that were before him basically abused the Israelites who were living in Jerusalem. They overtaxed them to the point where even the servants of these governors were able to do whatever they wanted. But in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 15, Nehemiah states at the end of the verse, but so did not I. I didn't do that. I didn't oppress. I didn't take what I was not allotted. I didn't abuse that power. And the reason he gives was because of the fear of God. Those who fear God will live like it. In contrast to that, those who don't fear God aren't going to have respect for persons. Okay, and not in the sense in which, you know, playing favorites, but recognizing that people are human beings. And because people are human beings made in the image of God, people have value. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 14, the children of Israel were to call to one another, thou shalt not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, don't do these things, but do this. Thou shalt fear the Lord, fear thy God, I am the Lord. You think about it. Okay, if somebody's deaf and they do something to you inadvertently and you're yelling at them as they're walking away, what's that going to do for them? Absolutely nothing. What's that going to do to you, though? might make you look a little bit like a fool. Or you put a stumbling block in front of a blind person. Okay, do you really have to put something in front of a blind person to cause them to trip? No. But why would somebody do that? Because they want the laugh. They don't care about that individual. And the cure for that is fearing God. And so we have this judge who has great authority, great power, great status, who is supposed to rule justly, but because he does not fear God, he does not respect people, especially people who are like the widow. In this day and age that this parable is being told, if the judge is on the top rung of the ladder the widow is going to be on the bottom rung. In this society, the men were the primary breadwinners. They went out, they supported their family. If the husband were to die, there was no social security. There was no life insurance. That widow is left to fend for herself, and we see this played out in the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth plays it out with a very positive ending. Unfortunately, that's an exception to the norm. So this widow, we're not told how old she is. Okay, She could have been as young as 14. She could have been as old as 105. You know, there, there's a great variety of age. But she has no one to care for herself. 
In Exodus chapter 22, verse 22, God commands the Israelites, ye shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18, tells us that God executes the judgment of the fatherless and the widow. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 27, God specifically says, puts a curse on the one that perverts the judgment of the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And we think about that, and even when we get into the New Testament context, in the book of James, James makes the statement, this is true religion, to care for the widows and the fatherless. There is a sense in which, as believers, we have a responsibility to financially help those who cannot help themselves. And most of the time, if we are of the conservative mindset, we don't like to think that because we see the extreme that that goes to. But there is biblical evidence to support, to a degree, helping those who cannot help themselves. But that's not the purpose of this parable. This widow has a case. The judge doesn't care because he doesn't fear God. The widow, however, is the energizer bunny. She is unstoppable. Day after day after day, she comes before his seat of judgment and makes her request for justice. And when we read it, she, what she's calling for is, avenge me of my adversary. Someone had wronged this widow. And she is pleading for justice. But we see this judge, because he does not care, he refuses her request. He continues to refuse the request. Why? Because he, and the words even that come out of his mouth, I don't fear God, I don't care what people think about me, so I'm not going to do this. But this widow eventually wears him down. You know, there is another parable that Luke gives that is similar to this, that pastor's already gone through with us. Uh, the friend at midnight. You know, which of you having a friend and he comes in at midnight and you don't have food, you're going to go knock on your next door neighbor and beg for bread and your neighbor's going to be like, listen, it's midnight, go to bed, leave us alone. But you keep knocking, and eventually he's going to get up and give you what you need because of your persistence. And that's the idea here. Eventually, this judge decides the case rightly on her behalf because the widow will not leave him alone. The language here is that she wearied him. And the Greek word here is a fun one. If you take the Greek word that's translated here, wearied, and you take it literally, it means to beat down, or to attack, or to hit under the eye. 
And so my sanctified imagination, you, you have this widow old lady who wants her case decided correctly. This judge keeps saying no, and she just hauls off with her purse and bashes him in the face. She wearies him. That's probably not what happens here, but it's a fun thought. If it's translated figuratively, it's the idea of wearing someone out. You know, if you go to a boxing match, and these boxers are well matched with one another, and they go the 10 rounds just pummeling each other. At the end of the match, that end of that 10th round, they're still giving it their all, but you can tell they don't have that same spring in their step. They have been wearied by each other's attack, is the idea here. It's highly unlikely that this judge fears getting physical violence from the widow. Also because he admits readily that he doesn't care what people think. This isn't necessarily a matter of, if I don't decide this case, everyone's going to think badly of me. Now, how dare he not rule in the correct way for this widow? He doesn't care what people think. But she does not leave it alone. And that persistence wears him out and he comes to the conclusion, if I just say yes, you know, it's like when your kids were younger and they kept asking you for that ice cream on your way home from church. And those cries for ice cream got louder and louder the closer you got to Culver's or the creamery. Or if you're the Vancinas and you don't have to go that route, you're scot free. <laughs> can we get, I'm hungry. Can we, can we get something to eat? I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. And finally it's like, okay, if I give you food, will you stop annoying me? Yes. Okay, we'll go ahead and we'll, you know, give you some kale. No, we want chicken nuggets, but the good ones, not that nasty stuff from McDonald's. Okay, so their, her persistence, she doesn't leave him alone, and he finally says, okay, enough is enough. And so then Jesus proceeds to apply the parable okay, in verses 6 through 8. And what Jesus is doing here, he makes the statement, listen to the words of the judge. Okay, hear what he said. What did he say? Because she bothers me, I will give her what she wants, lest she keeps bothering me. And that leads to some question. Is Jesus saying, and is Jesus making analogy, that God, being the one who can answer the requests, is just waiting until we bother him enough with our prayers before he answers? And the answer here is a definitive no. What Jesus is doing is something that he does also in the book of Matthew with the Sermon on the Mount, but Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. And we see this when he's teaching on prayer in Matthew, I believe, chapter 6. It could be 5 or 7, so don't quote me on the chapter. 
Okay, if your child is hungry and says, Father, can I have an egg? Are you going to give him a snake? Father, I'm hungry. Can I have some bread? Are you going to give him a rock? And then the analogy, the comparison that Jesus makes is if you, as a human being, as a sinner, if you who are evil know how to give good things to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give to those who are his? And that's kind of what, that's what Jesus is doing here. If this unrighteous judge who despises God who mistreats people, grants justice when petitioned, then God will certainly grant justice to his own who voice their concerns to him day and night. With the understanding that God is not reluctant to give, as this judge was. And as we look at this petition that is being made, avenge me of my adversary. This widow is crying out for justice. She's crying out for vindication. As we go through life, there are going to be times where we are mistreated where ultimately we are hoping and should be praying that God will vindicate his own. When you go and you read through church history and you see individuals who are martyred for their faith, we think, boy, did God vindicate them? In a human perspective, once that axe takes off their head or once that fire match starts the fire and their body is burned where's their human vindication but in a much greater sense as soon as they are absent from this body and they are present with the Lord they are perfectly vindicated this request that is being made is not God I need all of these things it's a very simple request God do what is right. And if we think about Christ's pattern prayer that he instructs the disciples to pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. How often do we pray that? God, I look around this earth and there are people who just don't care about you. It's not hard to tell. It's not hard to see that there are people in this country, there are people in leadership who don't care about God, who don't care about others. God, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the prayer of vindication here. Shall not God avenge his own elect, Jesus asks. And the idea there is, isn't God going to give justice to his own? We are to continue to voice our desire for justice. Not because God is hesitant to grant our requests, 
but precisely because he promises to answer our prayers. You know, that phrase, desiring justice, is one that has been hijacked recently. We're not talking about social justice or justice for something that happened 20, 30, 40, 150 years ago. We're talking true justice based on the just character of who God is. And then as Jesus concludes, there's a couple of phrases that, are in, that Luke records that wonderfully cause confusion amongst the commentators. So, so we'll hopefully confuse ourselves a little bit this evening just as we wrap things up. Okay? God is not unlike the unrighteous judge. He will not delay in answering our prayers. But then Jesus asks the question, will not judge the God avenge his elect, though he bear long with them? The idea here is that God is forbearing, or God is patient. And the question comes up, who is them that God is being patient with? And there are two schools of thought for the who the them is. Who them are, who them be. The first is, them are the oppressors. Boy, this is fun. I'm glad my English teacher is not in here. <laughs> them are the oppressors. Them are the wicked, is the first school of thought. And God is being patient with them. Like, well, why would God be patient with them? If we think to what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, God is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness. But he's long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Jesus could be here saying that God is being patient with those who are being unjust because he is giving them another opportunity to come to repentance. And that's something that we see in the rest of this, also in other portions of the scripture. So that is a very real possibility. The other them could be them is God's elect. Them are God's people. And the idea here is that God will vindicate his own even if it seems to be slow and patient. Even if it do he doesn't seem to re be responding on our timetable. And if we think about it, our timetable is so tiny. We're on this earth for 70 years, some more, But compared, you know, if we compare Grandma Hammer's hundred years, we compare that with all eternity. How long is a hundred years compared to eternity? How long is three months of my persecution compared to eternity? We are bound and we are stuck within the bounds of time. God is not. Either of these works, either God is being patient with the oppressors so that they have another opportunity to repent, or God is just being patient with his people. 
but the promise is still there. He will vindicate. He will avenge them. He will avenge them speedily. Or in other words, God will vindicate. God will vindicate. And again, here we have a question. What does it mean that God will grant justice speedily? Is it in the sense that when God does bring his judgment, it'll hit these oppressors so hard they won't know what hit them? Okay, it'll be just that quick. It's possible, but when we consider what that judgment is going to be, standing before that great white throne judgment, being told by Christ, depart from me, I never knew you, and then they are spending all eternity suffering under God's righteous wrath. That's, that's not a speedy thing. I think the better option here is that God will grant justice soon. Again, not our timetable, but his. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Peter reminds us, but beloved, okay, Christian, don't be ignorant of this one thing. One day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And Peter is writing to believers that are being actively killed for their faith. And he's writing that two days ago in God's book. Two thousand years in ours. So God's timing is not our timing, but God will grant that justice soon. When's it going to happen? Could be tonight that it starts. We don't make it home because Jesus comes halfway and catches us up in the clouds. Seven years later, boom, it's when it happens. It could be that. Even so, Lord, come quickly. But regardless of if it's tonight, regardless of if it's 20 years from now, 2,000 years since Christ's death, it will come soon in God's timing. And then Jesus concludes by asking whether when he comes back, will the Son of Man find faith on the earth? And the idea here is not when Jesus comes back, are Christians going to have been so faithful in giving the gospel that when Jesus comes back, the entire world is ready to welcome their king? Okay, we are not, we do not have the responsibility to convert the entire world to bring the kingdom in. Okay, that is an eschatology that we do not agree with. And in a greater sense, this question, shall he find faith on the earth, is more of a personal question. And we can put it this way, when Jesus comes back, will he find me being faithful? Now, it's easy for me to get lost in the crowd. But Jesus isn't being concerned with the crowd here. So when Jesus comes back, is he going to find us being faithful? And what's that going to look like? We are to endure, crying day and night, not growing weary. In this life, we may be mistreated. Life may seem unbearable, hard, painful. 
But we need to remember that God doesn't not want to answer our request. And that was the double negative that made it very difficult coming out of my mouth to say correctly. But God wants to answer our prayers. Especially when we are praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. After defeating the armies of Napoleon at Waterloo, the Duke of Wellington was asked a question. He was asked when he returned home, which army was more courageous, yours or Napoleon's? And his response was, they were both courageous, equally. But my army was courageous five minutes longer. It's not a question of who has more faith. But who is going to be patiently enduring faithfully until the end? Longer.